0: I took up reeling and writhing, and the different branches of arithmetic—ambition, distraction, uglification, and derision. Hello everybody! Welcome back to the Theater of the Golden Silence podcast. Your tickets have been taken. The refreshment stand is fully stocked with drinks and cakes, with corresponding requests to eat and drink them firmly attached. Now, before we roll the film, I just want to remind you to follow the Golden Silence cast on Instagram for the most up to date information on this here little podcast. It's there that I let you know what films are coming up, how to best watch them, so we can reconvene here for a bit of infotainment amongst friends. For today's showing, we'll be taking a trip down the old rabbit hole, the magical convergence of literature and film. Turning books into movies has been around almost as long as film itself. And today, we'll be stepping through that looking glass and popping out in magical wonderland of 1915 we are watching alice in wonderland but but before we get too far ahead of ourselves today we are going to be watching a movie that means a lot to me well technically not this movie but more the base story and that base story is alice's adventures in wonderland which was originally written by lewis carroll in 1865 charles dodgson Carol's real name, managed to create a timeless story of adventure that is incredibly popular with kids and adults to this day. It has never been out of print and translated into some 97 languages. The Adventures of Alice have also made a lasting impact on the cinematic world. Just counting the straight cinematic and television adaptations, there are 32-ish versions of it, and that's not including sequels or films inspired by Alice in Wonderland. And who knows, maybe someday in the future I can get into many of those adventures, Alice in Wonderland adventures in a podcast. There is just so much to talk about between the book and the movies, the TV shows. It's pretty much a never-ending hole of stuff. But for now, we're just going to focus on the silent versions. Uh, The first I could find was a British silent version of Alice in Wonderland released in 1903 and directed by Cecil Hepworth and Percy Stowe, which are about as British names as you can get, I might add. It starred Mary Clark as Alice, another silent film version followed in 1910. And, not counting what we're about to talk about, Alice and her gang entered the world of the talkies in 1931. But... It was between 1910 and the talkie of 31 that brings us here today. Before we get into the lowdown of this 1915 silent production, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about myself and why this story strikes such a chord. I've always been a fan of books, movies, and shows where the protagonist, from a normal earth dimension, finds themselves transported to some magical new world. Whether it was Peter Pan... The Wizard of Oz, or Alice, I was super into their exploits and their adventures. While I loved the Disney animated Alice in Wonderland adventure, my favorite adaptation by far is the star-studded 1985 Alice in Wonderland miniseries on CBS. Now, I can't tell you how many times I watched that thing on VHS, recorded off television, Watched it over and over, including when I was a kid, our version of it on VHS somehow accidentally got a space launch in the middle of it. So I'd watch the first half hour of it, then about 15 minutes of a shuttle launch, and then I got the whole rest of the show. So it's always a bummer when I watch it now and there's no shuttle launch in the middle. But I digress. These movies were all fascinating to me as a kid and as an adult. I can only imagine what a kid in 1915 felt, sitting in that theater, watching those timeless literary characters come to life in such a realistic way. Speaking of being in the theater in 1915, what was going on outside the theater? Well, this is the part of the show where we talk a little bit about what the world was doing back in 1915 now as a patron at the theater you got 52 minutes of adventure of traveling special effects just a fun awesome experience to be sitting in a movie theater watching but what happened when you stepped out of that theater when you walked when you walked back into the real world Well, if, as you left the theater of a matinee showing of Alice in Wonderland, you were plunged back into a world at war. 1914 brought about the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which lit the fuse for World War I. The Great War, and the war to end all wars, as, they were, as it was called, was in full effect in 1915, showing no signs of slowing down. On January 13th, of 1915, roughly one week before Alice was to release in U.S. theaters, a 6.7-magnitude earthquake struck the town of Avanzano in the central Italian province of La Acuba. This quake resulted in roughly 30,000 fatalities. On January 19th, the actual day that Alice in Wonderland was released in theaters, George Claude patented the neon discharge tube for use in advertising. So every time you see a neon sign, every time you go to Vegas, every time you see a sign in a bar, you can remember that on January 19, 1915, that was created and Alice in Wonderland came out. Now, in February of 1915, while working as a cook at New York's Sloan Hospital for Women under an assumed name, the infamous typhoid Mary infects 15, uh, infects 25, I'm sorry, 25 people, and is placed in quarantine for life on March 27th. On March 26th, the Vancouver Millionaires' hockey franchise, raised Lord Stanley's Cup after defeating the Ottawa Senators three games to none. On April 11th, we saw the release of Charlie Chaplin's newest film, The Tramp. Now, 1915 also saw some notable births as well. On May 3rd, 1915, Stu Hart was born. Now, if you're not immediately familiar with Stu Hart, other than having a fantastic first name, he was a professional wrestling trainer and promoter. He was also the patriarch of the Hart wrestling family, one of the greatest dynasties to ever lace up the boots in a professional wrestling ring. Through Canadian Stampede Wrestling to WWF to WCW, his fingerprints are all over the wrestling world. On three days later, Orson Wells followed Stu into the world the innovative actor and director was born on may 6th and on december 12th the world was introduced to an itty bitty baby frank sinatra though it's a few years till he is world famous 19 was the 1915 was the year that birthed old blue eyes to the world with the history lesson over let's lean back relax and drift away to the magical nonsense-filled world of the movie description. I thought you thought I was going somewhere else, but we can't start a movie without the movie description. Now, this Alice in Wonderland was released in 1915, directed by W. W. Young, who also did the screenplay and based on the Alice Adventures, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll. It starred Viola Savoy, the charming little actress, as the movie poster tells us, as Alice. It was distributed by the American Film Manufacturing Company and Nonpareil Feature Film Corp. Again, the film was released on January 19, 1915, and the running time was a slim, trim, cool, tight, 52 minutes and released, Country of Origin, the United States of America. Now, an interesting thing about this poster, at the, the very bottom, if you look up on the, the computer, on the interwebs, and you find the movie poster for this, one of the things it talks about is it says, it's a multiple reel picture. Now, because a single reel does not have enough film to show an entire feature, multiple reels are needed. And as this movie poster advertises, Alice is indeed a multiple reel feature, which I'm sure attracted audiences looking for longer adventures at the cinema. Now, before we tumble down any holes or grab any pig babies, let's have a chat about the version of the film we are watching and where we're watching it. Two of the easiest, easiest places to find Alice 1915 would be Amazon Prime or YouTube. I found the movie and watched it on Amazon Prime, and I felt the picture quality was as good as can be expected for a 105-year-old movie. In an effort to be an usher you'll both like and respect, I also watched a decent portion of the YouTube presentation. There were some versions with decent picture and quality there as well. This movie is 52 minutes. So, when you're searching the YouTubes, look for ones that are the said 52 minutes in length. Searching around, I was unable to track down any longer cuts or extra reels of of their silent shenanigans, which leads to a point I want to make in a bit. But first, probably the first thing you'll notice watching this movie is that there's no music. No soundtrack at all. Now, it's a bit strange and hard to get used to at first. Eventually, the stuff I liked about the movie overcame this lack of music, of soundtrack. Watching it on Amazon, the viewer is treated to static, like you might hear on a broken television or a bad cable connection. Why this is, I can't exactly say. Most of the silence did have a recorded or even consistent, I'm sorry, let me start that again. Most silence did not have a recorded or even consistent set of musical soundtrack to accompany it. And a lot of versions of silent films you'll see today are put out with redone soundtracks, uh, orchestras redoing the music that went with the movie. Like, you'll never hear the original music that went with it. Sometimes you'll be lucky enough to have the sheet music and current bands or orchestras will play it and it'll go with the movie. But, alas, with this one we were not so lucky. It's a bummer no one has made a soundtrack to accompany this flick because I think you could do some really cool things. You can really have some fun with the Wonderland-ishness of it. So maybe someday someone will will take the project upon themselves. Now, a second ago, I was talking about a longer cut of Alice in Wonderland. I feel like this could have been longer at some point because of the movie poster. Now, I'm new to all this, so I could be totally wrong. And it would not be the first time I'm wrong about something in this world. But looking at the theatrical release poster... It has two prominent pictures on it. The first on the bottom of the picture is from the Duchess's house scene in the film with the Duchess, the Cook and the Pepper, the Pig Baby, the stuff we know and love. And that's and that picture is all the characters are shown exactly as they appear in the film, set decoration and all. The other picture on the top is what, what threw me off the first time I saw it. This picture depicts Alice talking to Humpty Dumpty sitting on his famous wall. When I first saw it, before I had watched the movie, I just took for granted and thought it was either Tweedledee or Tweedledum and was surprised when they didn't show up in the final product. After the screening of it, I looked at it again and realized it was our Monsieur Dumpty. His costume is definitely in the style of the movie, so I figure it existed as a scene at some point in time. But, not in the movie. So who knows, maybe it got didn't work, and it just got cut for normal movie cutting and editing reasons. Maybe it's just lost to time, but The magic of 100-year-old film is always the potential for missing, destroyed film. And watching some of these movies is always an adventure. But the main event is here, what you guys have been waiting for. The screen is rolling, the credits are starting, so friends, let's enjoy the film Now, as far as opening credits, we find out that this film is brought to us, as I mentioned earlier, by the American Motion Picture Corporation, presided over by President William H. Barr. And it is adapted and directed by W. W. Young. And I tried, let me tell you, I tried to figure out what that W. W. stood for, but I was unable. I dug, I rooted around, searched and it's just going to have to be a mystery but if any of you out there know let me know on the golden silence cast on instagram if you know ww young stands for now the film with the opening credits out of the way the film starts and this timeless adventure starts as good old good stories start in a cottage alice's mom is smack dab in the middle of her own british bake-off challenge pots are on the stove and smoking and she is pulling tarts out of the oven now one of the first things i'll say about this movie is the set production team the set that the production team built for this flick and then this scene in particular looked really cool and realistic now i bring this up because throughout the whole film the makers of this movie made everything look top-notch and of a certain budget for sure As the mother puts the tarts on the table, we are introduced to Alice, who enters the kitchen. Alice, as I mentioned earlier, is played by Viola Savoy. At this point, with Alice coming in, Mother is putting the finishing touches on those aforementioned tarts, as Alice does a spot of daydreaming. She looks over at the old-timey cottage half-door. You know, the those doors like a farm door it's wood half of it opens the top half opens and the bottom half opens but it also opens as a whole door i'm sure there's a legitimate actual name but i know not it but for now we'll just stick with old timey half door alice finds those tarts certainly tempting but unlike my eating habits She was able to control herself. And at this point, I think, her mom is cooking with pepper, causing Alice to sneeze. Which we'll see a lot of foreshadowing, but I'll get into that later. Alice kneels down to pick up something from the ground, and we first meet her cat. And while we are on the topic of meeting new people, that brings us to Alice's older sister. She is all dressed up, gussied up, book in hand, ready to educate her little sister. What could possibly go wrong? The two siblings open the bottom half of the old-timey cottage half-door, taking leave of their mother. She lovingly waves goodbye, before, I think, angrily waving a churn stick of some sort at them. I have to admit, some of the fun of these films is trying to make out what old-timey thing, quote-unquote, someone is holding, or the times the picture quality is off just enough to make some things incredibly unclear and unrecognizable. It's an exciting game of what is he or she holding, and what do they intend to do with it. It is some thing. Before catching up to Alice and her sister, we are told, Things we do and things we see shortly before we fall asleep are most apt to influence our dreams. The sisters are making their way down an idyllic walkway when Alice sees a cute rabbit and grabs him by the ears to say hi, and I'm sure tell him how cute he is. It was only watching this movie that I found out grabbing and holding rabbits by the ears is a normal thing. Apparently, I've lived quite the sheltered life. I never knew that the tensile strength of a bunny's ears was so intense. But, I digress. Next, on the sisterhood of the traveling sisters, is their stop to see an owl perched on a tree. Alice tells her sister not to disturb the day-sleeping bird, and they press on. Next, they approach another tree, but this one has a cat. A cute, stripy cat who gets some pets from Alice. Now, they're passing a farm. A farm with cows, chickens, and and pigs. The sisters pass through a farm turnstile, and Alice starts playing with the little piggies. She hoists one up and says, and this... Might be my inner title of the movie, line of the movie. Sister, his name fits some little girls I know. Which I got a chuckle out of. With the farm stop behind them, the girls are in a field of flowers. Maybe dandelions. I'm not super sure. Since my lack of botanical knowledge and low-def pictures does not make a good combination. Alice is definitely doing the heavy lifting here. She has a ton of flowers, a legit crap load, while her bookworm, sisters has, bookworm sister has three. And a book, I guess. The whole opening segment has done well to set up everything that will be going down throughout the Wonderland portion of our adventure. The Wizard of Oz later used this style of narrative set up to great success about 15 years after this film came out, where you met... In the black and white Kansas portion, you met everyone that you would later meet in, in Oz. We're kind of seeing something similar here. A lot of the stuff she's doing is foreshadowing to stuff she is about to experience in Wonderland. Alice falls asleep while her square of a sister reads, It is one of the most known parts of Alice in Wonderland. Included in almost every cinematic outing, and this movie is no different. Big Sis reads poetry while Lil' Sis plays with her flowers. As big, sh- big Sis, I'm sure, drones on, Alice, sweet Alice, enters dreamland. Enter the White Rabbit. In this film, he is played by Herbert Rice. Now, we get our first glimpse at one denizen of Wonderland and this rabbit fella certainly looks the part. One thing this movie does great is production design. Whether it is sets, or in this case the costumes, they know for sure what the hell they are doing. Now, from what I understand, they were trying to be as close to the original book's illustrations as possible. They were certainly successful on that front. Now, back to our friend the White Rabbit. He, like many other Wonderland residents, is equal parts amazing costume and nightmare fuel. He has a great, realistic rabbit head with blinking eyes and all. The fact that his hands are human kinda adds a little bit of creepiness to it. But the stuff going on with the mask was really, really good. Rabbit Man, oh Rabbit Man, he beckons Alice... is motioning for our sleepy heroine to follow him in an ingenious special effect for the time a creepy dark phantom version of alice leaves her body and follows after this really cool ghostly form crosses a little wooden plank bridge and the rabbit moves ahead still beckoning for alice to follow at this point alice has regained corporeal form It would have been super rad if she could have stayed a phantom till entering Wonderland. But for a hundred and five year old movie, I can live with a little less with a little kiss of the creepy that we were given. The rabbit and the girl pass a literal sign, a literal sign pointing towards Wonderland. Alice seems to be in a bit of a daze, as if sleepwalking. It is time to take a trip down the world-famous rabbit hole. This hole leads to an underground cave and a heap of sticks and dry leaves. She feels her way into a room with three doors, all locked. A key sits on an oversized stool. Now, when she tries it, the key works not on the doors proper, but an itty bitty mini door at the bottom of the third door. She opens it and sees the most beautiful garden on the other side. According to IMDb, Alice 1915 was filmed in Long Island, New York, and a later scene, the lobster quadrille scene, was filmed in Cape Ann, Massachusetts. So when she looks at the garden... I'm going to say that is a nice park or a nice area in Long Island, New York. Because the stuff that was in Massachusetts looks very much Massachusetts. Unable to get through, she did what anyone lost in an alternate world would do. She cried and cried and cried some more until those tears created a river with a mouse floating down it, a human-sized mouse, obviously, as they both swim away from her eminent tear-death experience. We are introduced to the animal convention. Two creepily lifelike owl people walk about. One jumps from his perch. Alice and the mouse get out of the river. The mouse and Alice try to dry themselves off. As they do that, Another member of the animal convention slithers his way around. It is a super creepy lizard man. Very disturbing the way he drags himself along the rocks. Creepy. The mouse tells Alice that the dodo told him the best way to get dry is a caucus race. And I know every time I get out of a pool or am wet for any reason... I try and do a caucus race when possible. Not always possible, but I try. Again, I have to pop in and say that the costumes are amazing. I don't know any numbers, but making this flick can't have been cheap. These masks and costumes would look just as high quality today as they did back then. If you're into the various aspects of production design, this movie is definitely worth a watch. Now, the dodo bird, cane in human hand, makes his way to the convention and presumably the caucus race he loves so. There are so many signs pointing to this animal convention in Wonderland. So freaking many. This section with the signs, if I were taking a drink every time a sign for the animal convention popped up, this three-minute section of film would have killed me. The signs, signs, everywhere there's signs for the animal convention. There was a cool flying owl person special effect here. As he landed, where? You got it, the animal convention. Alice and the mouse arrive fashionably late to the festivities. This is where Alice tells the animals how she wishes her cat were here, because she is a capital one for catching and killing every one of the animals she is hanging out with. They all leave. And yes, it was actually something she said. Now, I got a chuckle out of this cat stuff, and each group of animal people leaving, as she said her cat would love hunting them. It was executed well, and I would say, 105 years later, that counts as a timeless joke. I quite enjoyed it. Now... With Alice left all by her lonesome, the White Rabbit appears, looking for his fan and gloves. We learn from Mr. Rabbit that he fears he might be executed. He's running late. He must find the fan and the gloves. Alice follows him to a small but lovely cottage belonging to the White Rabbit himself. She enters and takes a look around. This set is another example of the fantastic production design. Everything in the cottage is built to be smaller than Alice, but just right for the rabbit. They do cool things with perspective, with the steps, and build the furniture to make it seem like Alice is a legit giant. While she's exploring the cottage, she finds the white rabbit's fan and gloves. With a giant in his house, the rabbit curses her and runs off. As Alice leaves, she runs into everyone's favorite smoking caterpillar. He lounges atop his mushroom, asking Alice, Who are you? Alice responds, I hardly know, sir. I know who I was, but I think I must have changed. He tells her to explain herself, but she can't, because she's not herself, you see. Before we get too far into the caterpillar-Atlas dynamic, I just wanted to stop for a bit and say how great the Caterpillar costume is. We are seeing a mostly stationary shot of the two of them interacting, but he looks like he is straight out of the book. He, he, as most of these otherworldly costumes in this movie, has moving, blinking eyes that certainly add to the illusion. The Caterpillar now asks Alice to repeat the poem about fat old Father William. This leads to a side vignette showing us different silly things that Old Father William does, from standing on his head to somersaulting in at the door, to balancing an eel at the end of his nose. The actor playing Old Father William does some pretty impressive moves for someone having to wear a very bulbous fat suit. She spoke it wrong from beginning to end the caterpillar shouts, and with that, Our hookah-smoking friend lowers himself off the mushroom and slowly, and again a little bit disturbingly, crawls past Alice. He claims, as he crawls by, that she didn't recite his favorite part of the poem. At this point, I think she talks about growing and shrinking, but it wasn't clear. There were no words to go with what she was saying. But, knowing what I know about the world of Alice in Wonderland, I think that's what was hinting at. I also think she takes a piece of the mushroom with her, but again, whether the quality of the film or what, it was, wasn't was 100% sure to me. Now, a reason I brought up this Old Father Williams segment is because the Old Father Williams segment from the 1985 CBS production was one of my favorite parts. With the cooler-than-cool Sammy Davis Jr. as the caterpillar, and Natalie Gregory as Alice turned it into a super fun song and dance number. So I was happy to see Old Father William make the cut into this silent feature. If you can't be a fan of something Sammy Davis Jr. did, then you have a cold, cold heart. I'm pretty sure I read that in some journal of medicine once, I think. Alice has now moved on and come upon a large stone house belonging to the Duchess. She quickly hides behind a pillar as a fish man delivers an oversized envelope to the frogman butler of the house. The envelope contains an invitation from the Queen to the Duchess to play croquet. A quick tidbit of physical comedy ensues between the fish man and the frogman. Which, these are two guys I would love Side note, like to learn more about. Their costumes were cool. I want to see a, a Buddy Cop movie or something about the Fishman and the Frogman. I think there's something there. Some creativity to be mined. And as I have said throughout most of this flick, the costumes and the heads of these two are quality yet again. The Frogman butler head even had a moving mouth. Good, good stuff as the fishman butler as the fishman butler heads back in alice asks if she can come in she certainly does have a way of squeezing herself into other people's business he tells her no but she runs in anyway inside we meet the duchess and her pepper obsessed chef and the baby the pig baby you've no doubt heard tell about these costumes might possibly be my favorite of the whole film. So, so good. If you watch the movie, you know what I am talking about. And if you hadn't, Google it or watch the movie. They are fantastic. I laugh every time I see them. In a good way, of course. As Frogman, Butler, and Alice present the invite to the Duchess, who is holding her, for now, human baby, the Duchess's cook is having a fit while seasoning the food. Perhaps something... Perhaps seasoning is the wrong word. I'm sorry. She is throwing it everywhere. Too much pepper in the soup. And in the air, we're told, everyone is sneezing and coughing and generally having a bad go of it. Alice notices a Cheshire cat at the home of the Duchess and comments on its grin. The Duchess cook continues to toss pepper in the air all willy-nilly. Sneezing continues. The Duchess... As sneezing continues, the duchess recites a lullaby to the infant. Speak roughly to your little baby and beat him when he sneezes. He only does it to annoy because he knows it teases. Good stuff. Whilst reciting the lullaby, the duchess flips the baby over and starts spanking it. Having spanked the child enough, she hands the baby to Alice and says, Here, take the little pig. Duchess has no time. She must get credit for coquet with the Queen. Alice has had her fill of chaos and runs out of the house, baby in hand. As Alice walks to the next frame, she is now holding a pig. A cute the cute, spankable baby is now a real life pig in a baby suit. Alice seems to take the transformation in stride. If it had grown up, it would have made a dreadfully ugly child. But It makes a rather handsome pig, she says. The girl presses forward on her adventure, thinking about the other children she knew who might do very well as pigs. Next, she comes across the Cheshire Cat. The cat is just chilling and or relaxing up on a tree branch as Alice approaches him. She asks him for directions. He answers her question with riddles and deep thoughts. Alice cares not for where he gives her directions to. After a clever back and forth between the two, he disappears, then reappears. When he returns, he asks what happened to the baby. Alice says it turned into a pig, and the Cheshire Cat responds, I thought it would. He disappears again, only to return with one more question. Did you say pig or fig? Alice has pig, and for him to stop appearing and disappearing, it's making her absolutely giddy. As a fair, I feel compromise. His body vanishes, and his head remains. And that, friends, we are told by the movie, is the end of Real 2. Now, I felt that was a super strong and fun scene, on a few different levels. The shenanigans at the Duchess's place were really good, and the stuff with the Cheshire Cat kept it going. The costume of the cat was really cool looking, and I loved the banter between him and Alice. This scene also was pretty killer in the special effects department. First, there was the disappearing and reappearing, which was pretty seamless for a movie made in 1915. Then there was a grin without a cat, as only his body vanished. As far as I can tell, they made the Dottie disappear and just left the costume head on the branch to achieve the effect. To a viewer in the early 1900s, this must have been wild, wild stuff. Next, we see Alice discovering a doorway in the trunk of a tree. It leads, we are told, to the court of the Queen, king and queen of hearts. Again, we are shown a pretty slick camera trick, when Alice opens the tree trunk, the filmmakers frame the shot with a recreation of the tree trunk door, but place it in front of the court location they filmed at. A lot of simple but effective trickeration helps us further get into the film. Alice is giddy as she explores the grounds. We see royals royals waiting and welcoming the king and queen This royal procession makes its way through the beautiful courtyard. White Rabbit is also in the procession. Playing card soldiers arrive to salute their royal bosses. We switch over to three 'er ne'er-do-well card soldiers in the process of painting white roses red. Alice sees them struggling in the distance. She shouts and runs toward them. Why are you doing what you're doing? The gardeners tell her they accidentally planted a white rose tree and the queen will be off with their heads if they don't fix it and make it red. The card soldiers and card gardeners are probably the least of the costumes in this movie. Not that they are bad, just plain, Just folks wearing sandwich board that is the front and back of playing cards. Well done, but nothing crazy. The queen and the aforementioned royal procession snake their way through the garden. The gardeners drop and bow slash kneel before the Queen of Hearts. When she sees Alice not bow, Off with her head, she yells. The king pleads for her life on account of her being only a child, and the queen wants none of it, and demands the gardeners lose their heads in addition to Alice. With a sentence pronounced, the royal procession moves on to the wonderful game of a croquet, Now this goes down, as you no doubt have seen in books and adaptations. The croquet balls are hedgehogs, the mallets are flamingos, and the arches are bent over, card man soldiers. No one can get a good shot with the flaccid flamingos until Alice wanders in with the white rabbit. He takes a shot, then Alice, who misses, due to a less than erect flamingo. On the second try, though, she gets it and the crowd roars, they cheer for her. As they're cheering, though, overhead of this group, the face and head of the Cheshire Cat appears in the sky. Everyone looks up to see this. Now, this is a rad little effect. Perhaps, I don't know, but some sort of maybe double exposure, something to where just the faintest, faintest bit of his face shown up there. But however they got it, well done. It was cool. I dig it. The queen yells that a cat can't look at a queen. Off with his head for doing that. The cat head disappears, but it's too late. The damage has been done. Off with everyone's head, the queen yells. No one is safe from her temper tantrum. With the threat of a beheading on their minds, the crowds madly disperse. Everyone loses their minds and starts running around like chickens with their heads cut off. The queen even has a axe man running around swinging at folks alice though remains quite calm in the circumstances really throughout this whole adventure she has been the model of composure and holding it together probably way more than i would ever have if i was in the same situations now everyone has run off the field is clear save for alice the queen and the king the queen with a change of heart offers to take alice to meet the mock turtle and learn a little bit about his history we find the Queen and Alice at a rocky outcropping. They're going to meet the Griffin. He comes running out at them. The costume and mask and hands of the Griffin are pretty nightmare inducing sights to behold. I mean, it was a very cool, well made outfit, but not something I would want to see on a dark night. It's tough to explain, so I hope you've seen this movie. So you can know what I'm talking about. It is pretty much nightmare fuel, but super cool looking, I do have to admit. The Griffin and Alice come upon the mock turtle singing his song Turtle Soup. Alice and Griff walk along the beach. This is a scene filmed in Cape Ann, Massachusetts, I'm guessing. Uh, Just looking at the geography, the location, it seems like a very... East Coast, massachusetts kind of location. The two travelers quietly approach the singing mock turtle. They sit in front of the mock turtle who stands upon a large rock. The griffin tells him that the queen has sent them to hear the mock turtle's life story. The mock turtle takes them through his hard life in school. Alice finds everything he says to be quite funny. And uh, the opening quote before this episode started, is actually from this scene, which I really, really enjoyed. His life is told in silly non-sequiturs and jokes, which speaks to the timelessness of Lewis Carroll's work, because this stuff I still find quite funny. I find the puns funny. I find the non-sequiturs just all still funny to this day. Now... The costume of the turtle, the mock turtle, is possibly the best of this whole film. He really looks... To give you a good example, he looks like a Godzilla villain from like a 1960s Godzilla movie. Like if you cut him out of the movie and you dropped him in a old Godzilla movie, I think he would fit in just perfectly. The head especially of the costume is especially fantastic it's basically like an animatronic head but i don't know if those existed back in 1915 um whatever they did whatever levers and pulleys and things that open the mouth and blink to the eyes however those work that is good chef's kiss quality these costumes are just such delightful wonders of the production design of this movie and if for no other reason, watch it for that. A lot of people did some amazing, amazing stuff on this movie. Now, the griffin and the turtle, the mock turtle, say it's time to show Alice a lobster quadrille. What we see next is lobster men making their way out of the sea along with two walruses in suits and umbrellas. Everyone starts moving and interacting and dancing. Someone yells out, get your partner for the quadrille, someone says. As quickly as it, start, it started, everyone starts walking away. The white rabbit, King's Herald, calls all creatures to the trial of the Knave of Hearts. Alice walks with the white rabbit as he heralds all over the place, just heralding everywhere. If there was a place, he heralded all over it. Now this trial is to find out who stole the Queen of Hearts' tarts. We find all the characters are now in a courtroom, the king and queen presiding over all. Alice sits to watch the proceedings. White Rabbit reads the accusations. It went a little something like this. Let me prepare myself for this fantastic poem. The Queen of Hearts, she made some tarts, all on a summer's day. The Knave of Hearts, he stole those tarts and took them quite away. Thank you, thank you. I, I feel that went very well. The jurors consider the verdict, but Alice pops in and says witnesses and evidence should be presented before a verdict is handed out, and the king reluctantly complies Call the First Witness, he says. Call the First Witness. The First Witness is also our first glimpse and only glimpse of the Mad Hatter, a legend of Wonderland lore. The King demands that the Hatter and the Dormouse and the March Hare, who's in the background, you kind of see a little bit. I'm a big fan of the March Hare. He doesn't quite get the love in this movie that I think he deserves, or the Mad Hatter, for that matter. The King demands that they give their evidence, or die. After some silly back and forths between the Hatter and the King, the Hatter and company are dismissed. Next witness. The next witness is the pepper-pushing cook. The King asks her to give her testimony. What are tarts made of, he asks. She responds, pepper, mostly. As she says this, she is throwing pepper everywhere, again causing great distress throughout the courtroom. Alice is the next witness. She claims to know nothing about this event, which throws the court into absolute chaos. And then we fade out. We are back to our own world, our own dimension, and Alice is waking up from her dream world. Her sister rouses her up, and Alice tells her sister of the wild thing she saw as a cute bunny sits behind her. She grabs that bunny by those strong ears again, holds him and the two siblings start to walk home the end that is the end of alice in wonderland 1915 that is it folks as a fan of any and all tellings of alice in wonderland i really really dug this movie on imdb the movie scored a 6.2 out of 10 and 89 percent of google users like this film i personally thought it was great the costume and production design were second to none Iola Savoy was a decent Alice, and W.W. Young's directorial work was killer, killer stuff. The lack of a soundtrack was a bummer that did take away a little of the magic. As whimsical of a story that Alice in Wonderland is, ugly background static and ugly sound just kind of hurt it a little bit. What did you folks out in podcast listener land think? Please let me know on the Golden Silence cast on Instagram. Are you still creeped out by the Griffins' hands? I know I certainly am. Before we lay this episode to rest, it is time to find out where your favorite Silent Age stars are laid to rest. This is a segment where we get to join our favorite matinee idols on the other side of the cemetery entrance. The history, the art, and the celebrity of cemetery exploration converge, and where are they now? Your guide to paying your respects to the stars who entertained us so. I'm not going to lie, I struggled on this one. There is not much info on the cast and crew of this adaptation of Alice in Wonderland. I dug and dug, but came up empty-handed. So, I'm going to cheat a little bit. If you don't tell... If you don't tell on me, it'll be our secret pact amongst friends. And by cheating, I mean I'll give you the gravesite information on Charles Lutwidge Dodgson, a.k.a. Lewis Carroll. Carroll was born on January 27, 1832, and died age 65 on January 14, 1898, of pneumonia, following a bout of influenza. His body was laid to rest in Mount Cemetery in Guildford in the county of Surrey, England. His grave is rather unremarkable, actually, considering his stature in the literary world. I mean, you would think a lot of people people who have done a lot less have received a lot bigger. But in this case, it is just a simple grave with a cross marking the headstone. But He did get something. He is commemorated at All Saints Church in Daresbury, where the church has stained glass windows depicting depicting characters from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. So, at least there's that. And with that, another showing at the old Golden Silence Theater has come to a close. While the marquee is out and the projector off, the Golden Silence is always running on Instagram at Golden Silence Cast. It is there that you can learn interesting silent film facts, find info on past and upcoming episodes, and let me know what you think of the show. Until the next showing, remember the Silence are golden, and the talkies are just a fad.